So today we're looking at uh, John 1, and if you want to turn in your Bibles, your devices to that, um, this series that uh, we've been following from home as we watch the services on YouTube every Sunday, this series has been great, telling the whole Christian story from Genesis to Revelation, and we've been focusing on so many elements of that story from the Old Testament about our God as Creator, as the lawgiver, as the one who makes covenants with his people, as the king, the ruler, the one who's the source of all wisdom. And I don't know how I got assigned this one, but this is a glorious day for us to look at the incarnation, the coming of Jesus into the world, the word become flesh. And these are some of the most amazing words written in human history I believe, in these verses from John 1 that we're going to read together, many that we've heard already this morning. But follow with me, John 1, verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, of the will and but of God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth amen this is god's word everything in the christian story that we've been looking up to to this point is pointing ahead to this grand event that cs lewis calls the grand miracle of all human history. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, in her book, The Jesus Storybook Bible, says every story, every story in the Bible whispers his name, whispers the name of Jesus. And uh, the great anticipation now was fulfilled as Christ came into the world. Jesus says this about himself, that the whole Bible is about him. The whole Bible points to him. And he says, said this to his disciples after the resurrection. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the prophets and the Psalms, that is, in other words, the entire Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The goal of this series is to open our minds to understand the scriptures, 
Or like two of his disciples in that same chapter said, after Christ had opened the scriptures to to them, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us? As he opened the Bible to us and showed how many passages pointed to him. And that's what we want to happen for all of us. That our minds would be open to understand that our hearts would burn with passion and joy and excitement about what he came to do. So as we look at these verses here in John 1, we're going to look at what he says about in the beginning, what John says about in the beginning. We're going to look at his statement that the word became flesh and then that we have seen his glory. So back to uh, the first three verses of our passage. Look at what John says. In the beginning was the word. Does that remind you of anything? Of course. Genesis 1.1. The very same way that that begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here, John intentionally draws the parallel. And he says, in the beginning was the word, who we later understand, of course, is Jesus. And he was with God and he was God. Everything was created through him. He is the maker and the creator of all things. He is the the one God who's existed from all eternity. Now, he's introducing to us this whole concept of the Trinity. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to really understand the Trinity. You know, I heard someone say, if you try to really understand the Trinity, you will lose your mind. But if you deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul. The Trinity is is an unfathomable mystery. One God, three persons, existing from all eternity. One God, one God, three persons. And John here in this passage is saying Jesus is one of those three persons, existed from all eternity. All things were made through him. Or here's the way the writer of Hebrews puts it. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint or representation of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. One God, three persons. Jesus making all things, Jesus holding all things together. And back in verse 3 of this passage, it says, Without him was not anything made, that has been made. You know, we rightly often think about Jesus primarily as the rescuer, the redeemer, the savior of the world. But do you think about him much as the creator, the creator of all things, as it says here, without him was not anything made that has been made. The Jesus that came as a little baby to Bethlehem two years ago is the one who made everything. He's the one who made billions of and billions of galaxies and stars and planets. He's the one who made black holes. He's the one who made gravity. He's the one, according to Colossians, in whom all things hold together. He's the one who made majestic eagles and delicate hummingbirds. He's the one who made majestic mountains like the Rockies and the Alps and the Himalayas. And he made tiny little insects. He made, you and me. He, he made the trees 
around here that have been exploding. The leaves have been exploding with glorious colors this fall. He made all of that. I read somewhere that the Lord made 5,000 species of sponges that live at the bottom of the ocean. I don't know why he made 5,000 species. I think during parts of creation, the Lord was just having fun, you know? How many species of sponges should we make? You know, a couple thousand? No, let's make, let's make 5,000. Uh, he, he made 1,100 species of bats. Again, why 1,100 species of bats? He made a lot of really creative and funny and crazy animals. I came across one recently called the red-lipped batfish. And it's a fish that looks like a bat. Look it up, and it has red lips. It's crazy. You know, the Lord, I think, has, clearly has a sense of humor. The Lord made all of these things that point to his glory and majesty and might, but the pinnacle of creation, of course, is us. Made in his image, human beings, he said in Genesis 1, let us, the three persons of the Trinity speaking, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness. And the whole point of the Christian story is that though we have rebelled against him and run away from him and spit in his face, and though we are terribly, terribly lost, the whole point of this story that we're reading today is that because we are of such value to the Lord, made in his image, that he came into the world for us. This is the way Jesus puts it in Matthew. Sorry, in this part of Matthew, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. We are worth so much to him. That's why he came into the world. So let's turn to verse 14 and look at what John says about the word becoming flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, or Eugene Peterson paraphrases in the uh, the message, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He became one of us. The word that's used here in the original for flesh is a very startling word. John chose to not use words that he could have, like the the word became a man or something else. The word flesh connotes vulnerability and weakness. And he says, Jesus became a weak and vulnerable human being because of his love for us. I love these words of Max Lucado that many of you have heard as he describes for us what was going on in the incarnation. The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent on the nourishment of a young girl. Holiness sleeping in a womb. The creator of life being created. Floating in the amniotic fluids of his mother. 
God had come near. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands the first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. That captures so much. Jesus, by coming into the world, becoming flesh, as Lucado says, became breakable. He became pierceable because that was the only way to rescue us. Here's a great uh, theological statement by J.I. Packer about the incarnation and what it really means. The Word had become, become flesh, a real human baby. He had not ceased to be God. He was no less God then than before, but he had begun to become man. He was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. Very important. Not God minus anything, but God plus manhood so that he could identify with us. So what does that mean? Let me try to explain it in terms of a story. Some of you have heard the story of a a tragic death uh, in New York City many years ago, back in the 1960s, of a single woman named Kitty Genovese. Uh, uh, One night outside of her apartment building in Queens, an attacker approached her with a knife and stabbed her. And she immediately cried out. She was surrounded by big apartment buildings with hundreds of apartments. And she cried out, help, I'm being attacked. When she did that, though she was wounded and fell to the ground, the attacker for about five minutes ran away. But when he saw that no one was responding, that nothing was happening, he went back to her and finished what he had attempted, and he killed her. It's a very famous story. It's been written up everywhere in psychology textbooks and all the rest, called the Genovese Effect. But a couple of weeks after that murder, uh, journalists in New York newspapers had done a lot of investigation, and they published some articles saying that they had found out that during that attack, when she yelled out, that roughly 38 people heard her voice, looked out their windows, saw that the attack was happening, and not one person came down to help her. No one even called the police for help for her. Now, in later years, those numbers were adjusted downward a little bit, but still, we know that a lot of people, probably about 30 people, saw what was happening, and did nothing. And when asked, all those folks said, why Why didn't they do anything? Well, they didn't want to risk danger for themselves. If I go down, I could be hurt. I could be killed. I don't want to get involved. They pulled back. They assumed that somebody else would do it. I'm not going to get involved. The message of the incarnation that we're reading here is that when Jesus heard our plight, when Jesus heard our cries, he came down. 
And he knew that by coming down, there wasn't just a possibility of him being harmed. When he came down, he knew that he would be harmed. He knew that he would be killed. The only way to redeem us was for him to be killed for us in our place. That's what this message is all about. That's what it means when the Word became flesh and came to us. What this means for us is that in that he entered our world, is that there is no one, there is no one who understands you and gets you like Jesus. You know, when you're going through a hard time, I mean, soon I have found this as we walk through this cancer journey now for almost two years. When you're going through a hard time and you talk with others, it really helps if you get a sense that this person understands Maybe they've been through what you're going through. Maybe they've been through something similar. But when you share your struggle, your fears, your doubts, your questions, it helps a lot to have this sense that this person gets me. This person has compassion. This person understands. Well, what I want to tell you, and as wonderful it is to experience that on a horizontal level with your friends, There is no one who gets you and loves you like Jesus. The emotion, many of you have heard this, the emotion that's used the most to describe Jesus in the Gospels is compassion. He had compassion on the people that he met. He saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. So, as we think about the incarnation, I want you to to ask yourself, what are you going through? Does Jesus understand? Are you lonely? He was lonely. Are you broke? He was broke. Are you misunderstood? Have you been dismissed by people? Have you been betrayed by a friend? Have you faced overwhelming sorrow that has brought you to the end of yourself? That's what he faced. Have you mourned? Over the death of a friend or loved one, so did he. Have you faced death yourself? So did he. Have you cried out to God and felt like he wasn't hearing you? And said something like, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me or forsaken me? So did he. You see, that's the message of the Incarnation. That we have a Savior who understands that we have a Savior who is compassionate, we have a Savior who loves you, who draws near to you. But let's go on for the, in the rest of that verse, verse 14, because Jesus came to do more than have compassion and to feel your pain and to be a wonderful counselor. He came to do all that, but he came to do more than that. So look at the second half here, verse 14. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is pointing us to what Christ came to do for us. You know, as uh, Tim Keller often says, the gospel isn't so much good advice about how to live your life. It's good news about what God has done for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And throughout the Gospel of John, he's described in all of those ways as the good shepherd, as the vine, as the bread of life, the resurrection life. 
All those things he does for us that we can't do for ourselves. And all of this is pointing, of course, to the cross. All of this is pointing to his death for us. Here's a great statement from James Denny, a theologian. The New Testament knows nothing of an incarnation which can be defined apart from its relation to atonement. Not Bethlehem, but Calvary is the focus of Revelation. As wonderful as the miracle of the incarnation was at Bethlehem, it all is pointing to Calvary and what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I would say... The best thing for us to do is put John 1.14 together with this verse from 2 Corinthians 8 where Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, by his poverty, might become rich. That's where we see the glory of God fully manifested for us. That's where we see his glory. Now, when, when John says, we've seen his glory, we've seen his glory, we've seen his glory, what do you think he's talking about? Uh, you read the rest of the gospel, and do we see Christ's glory when he changes the water into wine? Of course. Do we see his glory when he feeds the 5,000? Of course. Do we see his glory when he heals the sick and the lame and gives sight to the blind? Of course. Do we see his glory when he raises Lazarus from the dead? Yes. But do you know where the whole Gospel of John is going when it talks about seeing the glory of Jesus? It's all of those things. But more importantly, it's the glory we see when Jesus is lifted up on the cross for us. For example, John 12, Jesus Jesus answered the people he's talking to and he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's 12.23. What does he mean by that? He goes on to explain. He's talking about his death. That's where we really see the glory of God. D.A. Carson puts it this way. The most spectacular display of God's glory is in a bloody instrument of torture. Because that is where God's goodness was most displayed. John says, we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. You know, we tend to think of glory as victory and celebration. The Super Bowl parade. You know, a big military victory. A person winning a great award, an Academy Award or something like that. We tend to think of all those things as glorious. The most glorious demonstration of God's goodness is at the cross as he died for us to protect us, to redeem us, to save us. In the first uh, Harry Potter book, this goes back quite a few years, obviously, the beginning of that series, uh, the evil Lord Voldemort tries to kill Harry through a villain that that, uh, Voldemort possesses. But when he tries to touch Harry, you may remember He experiences excruciating pain and has to pull back. And Harry is not harmed. He is not touched at all, much to his surprise. And he has no idea why this villain had no power over him at that point. And later on in the story, he goes to Dumbledore, his mentor, and says, why? 
Why couldn't, couldn't that, that opponent, that enemy of mine, touch me? And here's what Dumbledore says. Very moving as we think of what Jesus did for us. Dumbledore tells Harry, your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. And Harry understands. I'm protected because my mother died for me. My mother died for me. And I'm protected by that. The message, the heart of the Christian message that we celebrate is that our Redeemer, Jesus, died for us. And we are protected by that death forever from Satan, from sin, from death itself. That is what we rejoice in, brothers and sisters. That's what this whole message of the Bible has been leading up to. And will that change you as you meditate on that? The way it did, I mean, you know, obviously that affected the rest of Harry's life as he reflected on what his mother did. Yes. So the question I want to ask as we try to pull this all together is what impact does the incarnation and the death of Christ have on you now to change your life now and in the days ahead. What is happening? Do you ever look at yourself? And, you know, these are tough days in the midst of this pandemic and everything is strange and we're more, even more inclined to turn in on ourselves, I think, and be self-absorbed and caught up in weariness and frustration and anger and all the rest. And do you ever look at yourself and say, oh, my goodness, why am I so selfish? Why am I so self-absorbed? Why am I so self-righteous? Why am I so fearful? Why don't I seem to change? Why am I snapping out at the people closest to me? Why are we having such a hard time at home? You know, why is life so difficult? Why am I not changing? Is there any hope? Can I change? Well, the message of the gospel is absolutely you can change. And that's why Jesus came. And the more you look at him and the more you behold his glory, you can and you will change. And uh, I think a great compliment to 114 in John is this verse in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We, as we look at his glory with unveiled face, can be, will be, certainly will be, transformed from one degree of glory to another, from glory to glory. There's a great story that came out of World War II told by a Scottish soldier named Ernest Gordon. 
who describes something pretty amazing that happened while a number of Scottish soldiers were held as prisoners by the Japanese, and they were building this terrible jungle railway that was called, ended up called the Death Railway because so many people died as they tried to build it. And they were treated miserably by their Japanese captors. They were mean, they were cruel, they hardly fed them. People were sick, they were dying. I mean, it, the, the conditions were horrendous. And by every description, as a result, all of these Scottish prisoners were not only filled with anger and rage towards their captors, but they turned on each other. They were characterized by division, by strife, by selfishness, by pettiness, by nastiness. It was a mess. Division and strife, remind you of anything? Sounds like American politics in 2020. (laughs) But they turned on each other, you know, physically, with their words and all the rest. And then one day there was a crisis in this camp when they did the normal lineup and counting of shovels that they all used for digging, uh, digging the ground for this railway. And one shovel was missing. And the captain in charge, the Japanese captain in charge, holding a gun, looked at all these guys' prisoners, and he said, unless the person who stole the shovel steps forward and admits it, I am going to shoot and kill all of you. And they knew he would. He gave them one opportunity, he waited. He said, this is your last chance before you all will be killed. Well, finally, at what seemed to be the last second, one man stepped forward, and he said, I did it. And this captain immediately put, threw his gun, he actually put his gun on the ground, and he picked up a shovel, and he hit that man and killed him. Hit him again and again and again, till his body was a bloody mess. His fellow soldiers took this body and, and buried him. The big surprise of that day, though, was that later... They did a recount of the shovels, and when they did the recount, all the shovels were there. No shovel was missing. And these Scottish soldiers all of a sudden realized that man who just died was totally innocent. He died in our place because he didn't want to see all of us die. And news of that spread like wildfire in the camp and by, by all accounts, as this story has been written over the years by, by a number of people, that act of sacrificial love of that man dying for his fellow soldiers transformed that community and the atmosphere there. And all of a sudden, they started treating each other like brothers. And they, and all, and they started saying to each other, no more hatred, no more division, no more strife. We're going to love each other. They, they came together. They extended forgiveness towards each other. They showed mercy to each other because they had been shown mercy. And they even created all kinds of redemptive things. They created a jungle university in their camp. They created artwork and made musical instruments and had little concerts. And when they were finally liberated by the Allied troops coming in, Seeing the conditions they were living under, some of the Allied troops wanted to just wipe out the captors. These Scottish soldiers said no. No more hatred. No more hatred. It's time for forgiveness. It's a remarkable story about the power of sacrificial love to change. Well, 
what I want to say is that if, if the death of a soldier like that can have that kind of impact on that group of soldiers, how much more as we meditate on the death of Christ should that impact us to soften us, to enable us to forgive, to enable us to extend grace, to enable us to move towards each other with selfless behavior and, and love for for others, laying down our lives for one another. Is that what you want? I know you do. Way down deep we do, right? And that's why Jesus came. That's what it means, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. My prayer is that for all of us, this message will change our lives and transform us daily from glory to glory, as Paul says in Corinthians. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this remarkable message of the gospel. Thank you for what you came to do for us. And we do ask that you would come now and visit us with your spirit. We pray that you'd forgive us for our selfishness, our self-righteousness, for our fear, for the ways that we pull into ourselves rather than reaching out and loving others. And we ask that the gospel would change us, that the gospel would propel us that the gospel would send us into the world uh, with mercy and grace, just as you have blessed us with your mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your, your presence with us here today. In Jesus' name, amen.